As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with award-winning war photojournalist Thorne Anderson, the endowed chair for narrative and multimedia journalism at the Mayborn School of Journalism at the University of North Texas. He is a recipient of the 2018 UNT President's Council Teaching Award, as well as the recipient of one of the most prestigious awards in broadcast and digital journalism, the Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Video. Thorne has traveled the world in war-torn regions as a photojournalist for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, and Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, and Stern Magazines. Thorne, your photographs are incredibly moving, and I strongly recommend our listeners take a look at your online portfolio. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the Ollie series. I've always enjoyed doing it in person, and I'm sad that we can't do it now, but I'm happy to participate in this way. Well, it's great to have you here. I've been looking forward to hearing about all of your adventures. You have quite a background. You know, it's quite obvious that not only has a great deal of skill gone into the compositions that you have taken, but bravery as well, given the risks you took to capture these images. The photographs I was able to see on your portfolio have been used to tell the stories of war-damaged areas and to picture life of everyday people living within them. But not only that, they're also so artistically well done that they've been judged museum quality and commissioned for exhibition at the de Young Museum of Fine Arts in San Francisco. That's quite telling of your skill. I feel really fortunate to have been included in the collection at the de Young for an exhibit. It's kind of unusual for photojournalism to appear in a space like that, but they have an incredible photography curator who just has a, a very open mind, Julian Cox, and, and he made that happen. Well, they're very well done. You know, I have to say, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Thorne, but Thorne Anderson, you have the perfect name for a war photojournalist or <laughs> a commando or maybe a Tolkien character. Your parents must have known something when they named you. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I was actually, I got my name through a work of photojournalism in a roundabout sort of way. When Medgar Evers was assassinated, 
in Greenwood, Mississippi, the assassin threw his rifle in uh, the bushes, and a picture of the rifle was published in the newspaper. And the man who sold the rifle to Byron de la Beckwith, the assassin, agreed to testify against him in court when he saw the picture in the paper. And my father admired that man, and his name was Thorne McIntyre. So in a weird way, I got my name through a simple act of, you know, the most plain photojournalism. You can imagine a photograph of a rifle in a newspaper. That's really incredible. Very fortuitous. Do you prefer the term conflict photojournalist or war photojournalist? I've seen it both ways. You know, in most people who do the kind of work that I do actually don't like either term because it makes it feel as if the only thing that's interesting to them is uh, war. And it's not really like that. I mean, even within a war, what's most fascinating to me is the life that's lived within it. And so I, I'm not holding it against you or anyone else who uses that term, but I can just tell you that for those of us who are committed to this kind of work, that we really don't—the war is in some ways sort of secondary to what we're trying to do, which is to capture human experience. But that said, of course, you know, it's a category. We need some sort of term. And I suppose most of us would prefer conflict photographer because we're exploring lots of different types of conflict, not only weapons and munitions, but also political conflict, cultural conflict, all types of conflict. Well, that makes sense. I have to ask you, what inspired you to— get into this field initially? It's kind of um, surprising to me that I ever ended up photographing in areas where war was happening around me. In fact, when I was in graduate school, we were visited by a photojournalist who had just come back from photographing a war, and he talked about his experiences. And I remember turning to you know, one of my classmates and saying, the day I have to wear a flak jacket to do my job is the day I get another job. <laughs> um, so I never really expected that. But I moved to Southeast Europe for an opportunity right after graduate school, and I began working as a freelance photographer there. And I didn't go looking for the war, but the war sort of came to me. There was a, uh, a war, a conflict brewing in Kosovo, And at that time, I was living in southeast Bulgaria, just maybe 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers from where the conflict was starting. And I knew people on all sides of the conflict. I knew Kosovo Albanians. I knew Albanian Albanians. I knew Serbs. I knew Macedonians. Every sort of ethnic group that was involved in that conflict in Kosovo I was related to in some way because of where I lived, and it was something that was happening in my neighborhood. So I didn't go because it was sexy, because it was exciting, but for the adrenaline rush, I went because it concerned the the people that I knew and loved, and I wanted to be able to understand the story uh, even more than I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to understand it on a personal level. And that started me in photographing first the refugee crisis and then the spinoff of the war in Kosovo. And that led to another conflict in South Serbia. It led to another conflict in Macedonia, the Macedonian Civil War. And I began to see this type of photographer as something bigger than what I had originally imagined. I began to understand that wars are like, they're like the fault lines of these giant tectonic shifts of politics and culture. And when viewed through that lens, 
you it's it felt to me like I was suddenly plunging into the heart of something much bigger than the thing itself. And so I began to be really interested in the ways that that conflict revealed history, the way that conflict revealed culture. And then I began to understand how people could go from one conflict to another. And I also at that point, you know, just in a more mundane sort of practical way, those are the assignments I started getting. And you can imagine that if you're a news editor in New York and you want to send somebody to cover a conflict, you might have the maybe superstitious belief that somebody who's survived one conflict before is more likely to survive another. And that may or may not be true, but you can, you can understand as a news editor why you might be drawn to someone with that kind of experience. And so I started getting more and more of those assignments. Well, I can see how your initial experience has really affected the photography that I've seen you do throughout your career in this area in that you really do take it from the perspective of what it's like for a person, an average person living in an area that has a war going on. I'm glad that you see that because, I mean, that's always been my primary concern. We know that in the 20th century, the, the vast majority of casualties in war are civilians. And, you know, while I've covered the sort of frontline fighting from time to time, I generally feel like I have to do that in some way to tell the story of the conflict. I've always devoted the majority of my time to covering the civilian experience because I think that's in many ways the more important story. Exactly. I think it makes it more real to see how much we are all one and what an experience is like for people who are basically like us, even though they're living in a different culture and different circumstances, but there are people nonetheless having to experience this turmoil and trauma. And I think actually when we grow up, you know, our, our stories of history are so reductive. You know, we talk about how history is moved by wars, which is true in many, many ways. But we only think of battles and conquests. We have in our lexicon the term war games. I think a lot of that sort of tends to sanitize the experience of war in a way. And I think that it's important to remember that the struggles on the front lines is only one part of a story. And people on, on the next tier behind that and all of the civilians and of whom you know, the majority of casualties are comprised, um, they are experiencing a story that is not told so much in our history. It's not so much politics for them, but day-to-day existence and living with their families. And uh, I think you do a marvelous job of capturing that. Thank you. That's nice to hear. I have to ask you, though, when you first started taking pictures and reporting what's going on when there was actual gunfire, how did that feel when you first started hearing gunfire? How did you feel when you first started thinking, you know, here I am in the middle of it and I need to get close enough to take a good picture? It's a rapid learning experience, let me tell you that. Like, there is an adrenaline rush when when you're exposed to gunfire. And the first time it happened to me, it was kind of like my first motorcycle accident. Anyone who's ridden a motorcycle has one time or another had a minor accident where maybe they've had to lay down the motorcycle. And when it happens, you're like, I can't believe I'm not dead. And it was sort of the same thing the first time I heard gunfire in my proximity. I'm like, I can't believe I'm not hit. And then 
after a while, you start to understand, you know, you're surrounded by a lot of space and, you know, bullets are really tiny. <laughs> and just because someone shoots a gun, A, doesn't mean they're shooting directly at you. And B, even if they are, to a certain extent, there's some level of chance involved there. So you realize that not every gunshot is fatal. Not everyone is going to hit you. And you learn how to take cover. You learn how to sort of identify where gunfire comes from. You know, that said, I used to think that I was very, that I learned very quickly and that I was very smart. And that's why I never got injured directly by gunfire. But as I started seeing my very experienced, very smart colleagues begin to get injured or killed over time, I realized that I was lucky. And anyone who takes an assignment in a place like that just has to accept there is an inherent risk in working in a situation like that. Did you find yourself perhaps getting a little more brazen as you went along? You know, it's like the frog sitting on the hot plate or whatever that parable is. <laughs> There's, among journalists, you become accustomed to gunfire in a way that ordinary people would find appalling. <laughs> you do become more brazen. You become, it's just impossible to be hypervigilant all the time. And so what you do is you develop strategies for reducing risk. And rather than evaluating every microsecond of every experience, you fall back on your history of experiences and develop strategies to reduce risk, and you just hope that those work for you. So you identify in any situation that you go into, the first thing you do is you look around and say, if something bad happens here, how can I get out? And so you run through that sort of mental checklist, and then that psychologically at least prepares you for working in environments where there's increased danger. Well, I'm assuming that you must have done quite a bit of research before you began photographing and reporting within these war damage regions, especially since you chose not to be embedded with the U.S. forces while you were in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I understand even more now that you described what your experience was when you first began this type of photography. I have to ask, how did you gain the trust of the people in these areas that you went into that you hadn't lived in before? You know, the, the research is one of the reasons that I just kept doing it because it's so exciting to learn so much so fast. And when you're doing this kind of work, your motivation to understand is so powerful because it helps you be a better storyteller, but it also helps you understand people in a way that might keep you safe. So your motivation to learn is incredibly intense, and you do learn a lot very quickly. And that's one of the most addictive things about being a photojournalist is the just constant learning that's happening. And so, yeah, I would do a lot of research. I would read history. I would study as much as possible the language so that I could have at least some level of communication and have some communication without a translator. And I would learn the local politics. And to do that, you have to do that on the, on the ground by talking to people. And when it comes to gaining trust, I mean, that's just, that is the bread and butter of what journalists do. The solution or the recipe for that is actually pretty simple. And that is to have an open mind and to listen to people. It's that basic. When people see that you're curious, 
when they see that you want to tell the story of what's happening around them and they see that you're actively listening and asking the kinds of questions that lead to deeper understanding, then they open up and they feel protective of you because, you know, you are now the carrier of their story. So I can't even tell you how many times the people that I interviewed just minutes or seconds earlier suddenly came to my aid when something bad started to happen, when a crowd turned against me and maybe a mob started to form around me. It was often the people I had just interviewed who would intervene and say, hey, back off, leave the guy alone, he's just trying to do his job. Or when gunfire would erupt in a street, the people I just interviewed would be the ones who opened their door and brought me into safety. So that gaining trust and increasing safety, it all comes down to the most basic practice of journalism, which is having an open mind and listening to people in an active, curious way. Wow, that is an incredible tale. I mean, how heartwarming is that? That's really something. I was doing photography, street photography, just as a hobby one day in New York City on the streets in Chinatown. And the people, some of the people were really resistant to me taking their pictures. And I was just wondering, did you have that? Did you experience any problems like that with people on the streets not wanting you to do photography? I've certainly had people who did not want to be photographed, and especially in some of the environments where I've been working and people are doing things that they feel like have some operational security or something like that. And people can get really angry, and sometimes they're angry because, you know, a close relative has just been injured or killed in a violent way. And sometimes they can turn that anger towards the foreigner, you know, the visiting journalist. So definitely I've had people who've said, I don't want to be photographed, and then you just don't. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. But on the other hand, I will say that when you work as a journalist for a long time, you develop a lot of nonverbal communication skills. It's something that I try to pass on to my students as much as possible to, so that whenever you step into a situation without even introducing yourself, the kind of eye contact that you make, the way that you show your camera, the way that you perform your job, not just do your job, but the way that I, I sort of perform the role of being a photojournalist so that other people can see what I'm doing and become accustomed to it, then you can, you can really minimize a lot of those knee-jerk reactions. And I, it's very difficult to describe that to students because it's a skill that you develop over years. But there's a, a lot of nonverbal communication, and, and every long-experienced photojournalist will tell you that they often gain permission without saying a single word. Well, I read that you carried a white bandana in your camera bag. It's funny, I still carry it. I, in fact, I do. You? Yeah, I was photographing in a completely non-threatening situation just two days ago. And uh, it's in my camera bag. It's a, that's my one weird quasi-superstition as I carry that white bandana wherever I go. Well, in a different vein, I was wondering if you noticed a big contrast between the natural beauty of the people and the landscapes of the areas that you were in and the ugliness of the violence of combat. Yeah, Afghanistan is a place where that really resonates for me because Afghanistan has such a stark beauty. The deserts, I, I love the deserts in Afghanistan. The light there is amazing because it's a sort of northern desert as opposed to like the you know, Saharan 
or tropics desert. So the light is a little bit different there. It kind of lingers longer, lower on the horizon. And so Afghanistan, every photographer will tell you, is in some ways an easy place to work because of the, the light and the kind of stark beauty of the area. But it, it can be difficult because your concerns for personal safety can be quite extreme there because there are roving bandits and, you know, al-Qaeda elements even, or the Taliban is not a trustworthy <laughs> a trustworthy uh, player in the area. So it can be... It can be frustrating that to be in such a beautiful place and to be constantly concerned for your safety. It's also, it just seems like the kind of place where it would be fun to take a hike, but it's the most prolifically landmined country in the world, so you can't just go hiking in those beautiful mountains. That's too bad. I had an Afghani neighbor where I used to live, and she said, it used to be just filled with gardens all over. Just beautiful, beautiful gardens. So I'm sure it must be a beautiful country in a good time. You know, the culture in Afghanistan is, is they have a, a sense of being an ancient people, even though it's been a mixture of cultures over a long time. They have a sense that it's a long ancient culture. And you can kind of feel that even when, and some people don't like it when I say this, but even when I've been in sort of mm, Taliban-influenced controlled villages. I'm not a supporter of the Taliban by any means. And I think the Taliban's treatment of women is just horrific. But you can get a sense of a beauty and tradition, uh, even when there are parts of that tradition that offend my modern sensibilities, the ease with which people understand each other within the tradition has a kind of internal beauty. So I can understand people who are defenders of the Taliban way of life, even though I, from my perspective, I see their use of violence against civilians to be reprehensible. And even though I think the treatment of women in Taliban culture is reprehensible. If I remove those judgments from it, I can see the internal beauty of the culture, or at least the internal beauty of having an easy way for people to relate to each other that feels like it's rooted in an ancient tradition. I can understand that. I, and I feel like I'm. this is sort of a tortured point that I'm trying to make here, because I don't want people to think that that I'm a supporter of like Taliban rule of Afghanistan. I'm, I'm certainly not. When you hang around that type of tradition for a while, you, you at least appreciate why someone might be drawn to it. What affected you the most in your photography of these average citizens in either a good or a bad way? What do you feel has had the most impact upon you? You know, I have photographed almost by definition in areas of deprivation. War itself is an act of deprivation. And so I'm always encountering people who have fewer resources than what I have on a day-to-day -day basis in my home life in the United States. I'm always encountering people who have incredible obstacles to climb just to live a normal life. And yet, you get to see these little glimpses of people just performing brilliantly under the circumstances. I'll give you one example, one that sticks with me and will forever stick with me. Right after Saddam Hussein had fallen from power, I had earlier been in Iraq, but I was arrested and I was kicked out by Saddam's secret police. And I spent a good, the last part of the shock and awe bombing 
in Jordan, but I came back in right after Saddam fell from power. And on my first day back, I was passing through an area that was near the Palestine Hotel, which was famous because it housed a lot of journalists. And it had the Palestine Hotel had always been a hotel of, by Iraqi standards, opulence. But right across the street was this little shack of a house. And when I drove up to that shack, a fire was across the road. And at first, it, it terrified me because I, was, I didn't know what was happening. Is this, a, is this an ambush? Is this a trap? But we stopped, and, and the guy sort of waved us out. And he was standing across the road. He said, don't come close. I'm almost done here. And he was melting the tarmac so that he could run an electrical wire across to the power lines that were in the opposite side of the road where the hotels were, where he could finally get electricity. He said, I've been waiting and asking, requesting from the government for 20 years for electricity, and they've never provided it to me. Saddam's gone. Now I'm just taking it. And I, I thought, that's amazing. You know, this guy, on day one, it didn't take him any time. He said, I'm finally going to get what I need. And he was willing to melt the tarmac and bury his own electrical line to make it happen. And I thought, you know, if he can do that in his circumstances, you know, what can I do when I go back to my life where I have so many opportunities? Pretty incredible. Were you ever asked not to release any of the photographs you took? Yes. It's hard for me to recall specific circumstances. More often, you get people who just sort of shut you down from photographing. I have had police in Serbia who told me not to release photographs of them roughing up protesters. And I did anyway, <laughs> because I felt yeah. like the story was important. So I have sometimes honored those requests and sometimes not, depending on how powerful the person is. You know, if someone is very powerless and they fear for their safety and they've asked me not to publish a photograph, then I think it's an ethical choice not to do so if that photograph might bring harm to that person. So I've made the decisions in both directions, I would say. I heard you relate a story where you were in danger from threats by one of the insurgents when you were photographing in what was at the time called Saddam City, yes. a suburb of Baghdad in Iraq. The story certainly conveys the dangers that must have presented themselves on a daily basis. I just wonder if you could describe it for the listeners. Well, I've, I've definitely been sort of under threat in that area more than once. But the most, um, probably the story that you're thinking of was the one that kind of made me leave Iraq. Saddam City was a an area that was inhabited by Shiite Muslims and was an area that was heavily repressed when Saddam Hussein was in power. After he fell from power... It was immediately captured by the adherents of a, a cleric and his militia, which he called the Mehdi Army. So the Mehdi Army sort of controlled that area. That The Mehdi Army had, like many militias, had sort of two strains. It had the true believers, is what I would, I would think of them, people who just felt like they were fighting the fight of the oppressed and they were trying to fight for the people. And then it had the gangster element. And every militia has that gangster element, people who use the power of the militia for personal gain or political gain. I had worked my way into what became known as Sadr City from Saddam City after Muqtada al-Sadr, the cleric who led the Mehdi army. 
And I had been working there mostly with the support of those kind of true believers. But there was one commander who was definitely of the gangster sort who had tried to get me to work around him. He wanted to supply my security to work there. And I knew his type, and so I avoided him. And slowly he started to sort of track me. And so I would typically go to Sadr City and leave after just a few hours because I kind of knew that this guy was always lingering around with his bodyguards. And at one point, he just caught up to me. So he removed me from my car. My wife is also a photojournalist. She was also removed. They placed us in another car at gunpoint. They took my driver away and interrogated him separately and interrogated us. And he made it clear that we could no longer work in Sadr City without paying him money and always using his bodyguards for protection. And I wasn't paying anyone for, for protection, and I wasn't about to pay him for protection. And he had also recently beaten up a colleague of mine, another photojournalist, under similar circumstances. He was the publisher of a newspaper that was known for publishing firsthand accounts of executions of traitors. I suspect that he probably even carried out those executions himself. And that kind of personal attention from a person like that, it just became too much for me. And, and I had been working in Iraq for nearly three years at that point. I was tired, I was burned out, and that was just one hurdle too many. And so he effectively chased me out of the country. Understandably so. And you mentioned your wife, K.L. Alford, who was also there at the time with you, which I think is is pretty spectacular. But you all didn't go on your assignments together, right? You were working on different assignments at the time? We always worked for different people. So I might be on assignment for Time and she would be on assignment for Newsweek. And so inherently there's some sort of competition there. So many times we would be working on different stories, but we would live in the same place. So we rented an apartment together in Baghdad. There were times when we couldn't even tell each other about the stories we were working on, but we would always tell each other as much as we needed to know to follow up on the other's safety. So we would tell each other where we were, where we were going, when we were coming back, that sort of thing, or which translator or driver we were working with. So we would keep up with each other that way. And in many cases, we would be able to travel together if we weren't working on competing assignments. And so whenever possible, at a practical level, we could share the resources of a driver or a translator because that costs money. And so sometimes we would be able to share those resources. But much of the time we had to work separately, even though we lived together. Well, you're both way high up at the top of my list of impressive, brave people, I have to say. <laughs> and I I wanted our listeners to know that you co-authored a book with KL entitled Unembedded, Four Independent Journalists on the War in Iraq, highlighting the effects of the Iraq war on its citizens, on everyday people. Is that still available? Well, it's out of print, but I noticed that copies of it pop up frequently on Amazon and other places. So it's still possible to get a copy in good condition, but it's it's out of print. Going back to another one of your stories that I heard about that I found very impressive, although, like I said, there's many of them. At one point, you had managed to insert yourself into the Imam Ali Shrine in Najaf, I hope I'm saying that right, one of the most holy cities in Shiite Islam. 
And just to give our listeners the situation that you were in at the time, there was a skirmish with U.S. Marines that spiraled into a three-week urban siege with what I read were 4,000 American and Iraqi troops surrounding some 2,000 militiamen. And then with a satellite phone low on batteries and no way to recharge, you got word that Time Magazine wanted your photographs from inside the shrine. I can't imagine as a photojournalist what stress that must have put on you. How did you manage that whole situation? And going back a little bit, you know, you had said that some of the people you interviewed had helped you out. And I believe some of the militants actually helped get you into the shrine. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. I mean, I had to, at some point, I had to make myself known. You, I can't, I'm not invisible. So <laughs> if I was going to get into the middle of the shrine, I needed the acceptance and the cooperation of the militants. This is a story that's uh, very complex from a logistical and also ethical standpoint. It's something that's very hard for some people to understand. So not only the how did it happen, but sort of why. Why would I even go in there? I think it's important to remember that, as you mentioned, that Najaf is one of the holiest cities in Shiite Islam. It's like the Vatican of Shiite Islam. And the Imam Ali Shrine is the place where all of the Ayatollahs in Shiite Islam are educated, all of them. And it, so it really has a very, very close comparison to the Vatican in Catholicism. And that shrine, of course, is heavily revered. And at the time, the Americans were considering storming the shrine where the militants were holed up. If you know anything about Shiite Islam, you would know that that would be an incursion that would last for a millennium. Uh, <laughs> if that were to happen, then it would have repercussions for many, many generations. Some of the things, the justifications for a possible storming of the shrine were that the militants were launching attacks from within it or that they were destroying the shrine from within and I thought it was important to know if that was true. And so that was really the reason to go in. I needed to know, were they really launching attacks from inside? Were they really wiring it with explosives to destroy it? And it was difficult to get in. I had to cross a kind of a, a hot front line. I had to flag down part of the, the Mekti army militia and hope that they would bring me over and not just arrest me. I did have a letter from a high-ranking cleric who was admired by the militia, which identified me as a non-combatant journalist. And luckily, they honored that, and they let me in, and they left me alone. And I did discover that, in fact, they were not launching mortar attacks or any other attacks from within the shrine. They weren't wiring it with explosives. In fact, the militants who came to the shrine would be stripped of their weapons before they were allowed in. Now, I'm still not taking a side in this conflict. I'm not saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm on the side of the Marines or I'm on the side of the Mekti army. What I'm really doing is giving another perspective of the truth. So that was the reason that I was in there. So I think it's important to start with why, <laughs> because it was an important story that the answers with questions, the answers to which I think were important to make good decisions. It's important to have 
uh, many different perspectives when we're making decisions. So I certainly understand that. Do you have a photograph or a series of photographs that stick with you the most? I can't really say that I, I, in that way, I would say the experience of the Iraq war was the most challenging for me, ethically, logistically, personally. So that book, the unembedded book to me is, it does sort of encapsulate the experience of Iraq, which really changed me as a person. In what way? I think it made me understand global politics a little bit better. It made me understand how local politics can move people to do things that you wouldn't expect them otherwise to do. I see even to the point of, you know, in our current situation where we in the United States, where we have debates over whether or not to wear a mask and how that doesn't seem like a political issue, but it becomes one. I can see how the germ, that's like a germ of something that can turn into something much worse down the line. And because I covered the Iraq war and how that conflict and the inter-ethnic conflict unfolded over time, I could see those little germs turn into big conflicts. And so it gave me kind of a, I don't know, maybe the astronomer's view (laughs) of conflict. Did you ever find it difficult to stay behind the camera and not get involved in a scene that you were capturing? There were times when I had to step out from behind the camera I've had to help evacuate injured people. I once photographed in Macedonia a barn that had been set alight by Macedonian police. It was an Albanian farmer's barn that had been set on fire. And he was struggling to remove his cattle. And I I walked around the back of the barn and I noticed that there was a young heifer who was trapped behind a, a wire fence. And I realized, oh, I have uh, wire cutters <laughs> on my belt. And for a brief moment, I had this sort of academic ethical debate as to whether or not I should intervene. And then I I quickly realized this is stupid. Of course, I should just cut the fence and let the cow go. So and I think every photojournalist has those experiences where at some point you have to just put your camera aside and just be a human being. Well, this probably seems like a silly question, but I know that composition is a critical element in a good photograph, and I see that, of course, quite masterfully done in your photographs. Did you do that in the heat of the moment, or do you do it post-processing after your photograph is shot? It's definitely, it's it's in the moment. I mean, composition is like a, it's a muscle that you develop. It's a weird thing. You know, you, you go out and you photograph and then you come back and you evaluate it. And so it's kind of a, it's a, it's a difficult muscle to develop because it has that lag of, of feedback. But over time, you do develop that compositional muscle and it gets to a point where it's not even something that you explicitly think about, but it's something that you internally respond to. Well, I have to say that You and Kale are just, as I said before, extremely brave, and your children must be like the bravest kids on the playground (laughs) from what you both have been through. What's it like readjusting to being home? Do you miss the danger and the excitement a little bit? Early on, I think I had a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, and I would describe it in this way. For me personally, it's different for every person. But for me personally, I didn't necessarily miss the excitement, but what I did miss was the sort of immediate sense of every interaction having consequence. Very simple decisions like whether or not you should go left on a street corner 
or right on a street corner seemed consequential because it did. It had a safety. It had consequences for your safety, for example, or simple interactions between ordinary people within the context of of important historical events seemed consequential. To a certain extent, that's true, and to a certain extent, it's an illusion. Because when I came back to a more normal life, it seemed like I had infinite things that I could do, and somehow none of it seemed to mean anything. And that's a distorted view. I mean, that was uh, like an illness. It's a sickness. That was my how PTSD expressed itself with me. I found it difficult to enjoy normal life. I think that's changed for me. It took time. It's taken, it took a lot of time and experience and where I could enjoy ordinary life. And now I, I love working with my students. I love seeing them grow and intellectually prosper. I have two kids that are beautiful and I like watching them develop. And I can recognize now that I'm healed in a way that I do enjoy ordinary life as it should be enjoyed. But it did take time for me to get there. Oh, that's understandable. Absolutely understandable after being on high alert for so long. The world seems to have gone video now, and I know you've expanded into film and multimedia storytelling. And I mentioned in your introduction that you received the Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Video. That was through your work with KERA One Crisis Away program, wasn't it? That's correct. And that's with people in the community struggling with poverty and financial burdens? It's true. I'm a big fan of the KERA One Crisis Away project because, once again, I think I'm drawn to the experiences of vulnerable people because I think those are often ignored in the broader media landscape. I think that as much as I love journalism, I I recognize that it's almost overwhelmed by pop culture. And pop culture doesn't typically acknowledge the experiences of vulnerable people. It celebrates the victorious ones, the ones who become famous, the ones who become rich. And I think that once I was invited to join the One Crisis Away project, I knew I had found a new home for myself where I could take some of the similar motivations that brought me into covering conflict to covering my own local community. There's certainly plenty of conflict around for all of us, right? Sure. And as far as the video goes, I think I do work almost exclusively in video now. Part of that for me was because I'd worked so long as a photographer and paired with a writer, which is a beautiful collaborative experience. But always there's this tiny bit of frustration that in the world of magazine photojournalism or newspaper photojournalism, the writers tend to get preference for controlling the context and the narrative of the story. And sometimes that would really frustrate me. Now, I I remedied that by working with colleagues to produce a book of our own. And so that was satisfying for me. But I realized that if you're sort of a a one-person band videographer, you're in total control of the narrative at that point. So in a way, working in video is for me scratching an itch that was persistent for 20 years. And now I'm really enjoying being able to control the story from start to finish. Are you working on a project now that you can talk about? I am. I'm working on a commission from ITVS. They are the primary suppliers of independent documentaries for PBS. 
and it's a rural justice project. They asked me to pitch a story from Texas on the power of prosecutors and district attorneys in rural areas. And I found a really interesting district attorney in Wilbarger County, the county seat in Vernon. He's actually the district attorney for three adjacent counties. And despite coming from a place as sort of hard scrabble as Wilbarger County, he's introduced some very interesting reforms meant to address and reduce the incidence of domestic violence in that area. So I've really enjoyed immersing myself into that little world and learning all that I can about that community. I've developed characters, the district attorney himself, a woman who is a survivor of domestic abuse, a counselor who treats women who have survived domestic abuse, and a counseling program for the perpetrators of domestic abuse. And I've even cultivated a character who is in a treatment program to overcome his own history of domestic abuse as an abuser himself. So I'm I'm very interested in that story now. It's a bigger project than I'm used to working on, so it's going to take a long time for me to wrap it up. I'm hoping to wrap that up by the end of this year. I'd love to see it. That's certainly a critically important subject, and it's one that's important to educate everyone about. So what's your advice to students pursuing a career like the one that you are in? What do you tell your students at school? Well, it takes me many semesters to tell them all that I want to tell them. I I think, you know, as far as the practice of journalism goes, I think one of the things that's often overlooked is the role of empathy, of leaving behind your preconceptions and being open to other people's experiences, even when they're very different from your own. So cultivating and practicing the exercise of having an open mind and being empathetic to everyone you talk to is a foundational skill. And I think in journalism education, it's easy to get bogged down in the the technicalities of how you operate a camera or how you do a records request or how you communicate with an editor, I think it's important to remember that the very foundation, empathy, is also an important skill that we need to cultivate and develop. That sounds like important advice for all of us and certainly a skill that you have that I can see in how you were able to go to these places and have people trust you and work with you. So it makes a lot of sense. Thorne, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been my pleasure. And again, I'm a big fan of the Ollie series. I appreciate not only you and all that you do, but all the people who come to the Ollie for the learning experience, the quote unquote students of the classes. I just, I'm so inspired by people who are committed to a lifetime of learning. Me too. It's an incredible group of people. It truly is. Thank you again. Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Thorne Anderson. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. 
We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.